Take your seats. Well, welcome once again to the Sermon on the Mount. We took a short break last weekend because I was on holiday. And um, thank you to Dudley who stepped in and taught on the parables. Who was there for Dudley last week? So that was, that was great. And um, we're teaching the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go through June on the Sermon on the Mount. We might even need July as well. Because one of the beautiful things about a teaching service is that you can teach. Um, thank God for topical sermons. We have topical sermons and for themes and prophetic sermons. All that's wonderful. But you know, there is a place for good old-fashioned Bible teaching where you don't feel pressured that you have to get through something in an hour that really should take weeks to teach. And also, there's something about taking a portion of Scripture or a doctrine, and spending time in it week after week, it gets deep in your spirit. You know, sometimes it does concern us when you think that you can have one sermon on a Sunday, and then if you ask people the next Sunday what was the sermon they heard last Sunday, sometimes they don't know. It's hard. Sometimes I don't even remember the sermon I preached last week. So to be able to look at a theme like the Sermon on the Mount or whatever it is at these teaching services allows God's Word to get in deep into our hearts in a way, well, there's no other way that it can get in like that, to teach these, the Word of God. And so it's wonderful that we are able to spend time in what, was, what is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you have your Bibles, maybe you'd like to turn to it in Matthew chapter 5. Now, for those of you that are interested in the Sermon on the Mount, um, if you've missed any of the Sundays that I've been teaching on it, you just need to go on kt.org website, the media section, and everything that we've been teaching is there, so you can easily catch up. For those of you that would like to read or to study a little bit deeper in some of the things that we're looking at, I've got two books that I could recommend to you. Um, one fat, one thin. So depending on your appetite for reading, you can decide. The thin one is uh, Enjoying God's Kingdom Now, The Rule of God. That's by our own senior minister, Colin Dye. It's part of his Sword of the Spirit series. And this book is on the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the teaching is based on. So that's The Rule of God. And that, that's, that's there. It's thin. And then, if you really want to get reading and you got uh, some time to do that, then I recommend, it was uh, recently published, I think it was end of last year, um, R.T. Kendall's book on the Sermon on the Mount. This is an excellent book, thick, but full of goodness. And so I recommend those for further study. Well, let me, as I like to do, I like to recap, not only because I know that there may be some people that are here for the first time or maybe the second time, but also I believe it's important that we continue to build on the things that we've already learnt. One of the things about the Sermon on the Mount that I've been emphasizing is that it is a sermon. And so you can't just go to the Sermon on the Mount and pluck out a section of it and teach it. Uh, because it's meant to be understood as a whole. And you can't understand the parts unless you understand the whole. And one of the ways that the Sermon on the Mount has been mistreated by preachers and politicians is people just take bits, like, bits that they like and quote them out of context. And uh, if you quote them out of context, you, you're going to misunderstand them. 
this is the beautiful thing about being able to, thank you Calvin, spend time looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, because it was preached as a whole sermon. And the Sermon on the Mount, its introduction are the Beatitudes. I'm going to read them to you today because I like to remind us of them, because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of the characteristics of the Spirit-filled Christian found in these Beatitudes. So we're going to read that. Chapter 5, verse 3, Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I like to read these at the beginning of each of these uh, sermons because whatever we look at in the coming teaching today is actually an exposition of these characteristics. This is the introduction. This is a picture of the spirit-filled believer and the sort of qualities that a disciple of Jesus will carry. Jesus, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So although there was many more than his near disciples who would have heard the sermon, Jesus was preaching a message to disciples. He was basically saying, this is what I expect my disciples to be like and to act like. And so we start with the Beatitudes, the character of the Spirit-filled Christian. Then in chapter 5, verse 11 to 12, it talks about the reaction that the world will have to such a spirit-filled believer, the reaction of the world, which will be persecution and misunderstanding. Then in verse 13 to 16, we see the Christians function in the world. What is this beatitude person, this blessed of the poor in spirit? What are they on earth for? Well, we're here to be salt and we're here to be light and we're to let our light shine. Then after that section, we move into verse 17 and, and to 48. And this section is where Jesus is speaking about the fact that he hasn't come to, de to destroy the law of Moses, but he's come to fulfill it. And that Jesus is now calling on his disciples to have a righteousness, as he says in those verses, that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. We've been looking at this and we have said that the righteousness of the Pharisees was externally measured. Jesus was constantly criticizing the Pharisees for having an outward holiness without dealing with the heart issues. We know, for example, that the issues of sin aren't just external issues, but the issues of sin come from the heart. And Jesus is saying that those that follow him don't just follow him externally, but have to follow him with all their heart. So he talks about a righteousness that exceeds those of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus has fulfilled the law, 
What does that mean? It means Jesus came to complete the law. The law was looking for a person to fulfill it. It was pointing towards Christ. And when Christ came, he fulfilled the law. Now, when something is fulfilled, it comes to an end, doesn't it? If somebody says, that prophecy today has been fulfilled, it means that the prophecy has run its course, it's been fulfilled, there's no more use for that prophecy. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. He was what the law was looking to. And during this time, of course, when he was preaching the sermon, he hadn't yet fulfilled the law, had he? He was still living under the law. He was still walking according to the law. He was in process of fulfilling the law. The moment that Jesus fulfilled the law came on the cross when he said, it is finished. At that moment, he had fulfilled all the law's hopes and demands and he had completed the purpose of the temporary law. And from that moment... The law was fulfilled in Christ. Remember, he took the test or the examination of the law on our behalf. Do you remember that? He took the examination of the law, passed 101%. But at the top of the test paper, he wrote your name. He wrote mine. Everybody that is a Christian, everybody that is in Christ has also fulfilled the law. So the righteous living that we're talking about is spirit-filled living. We're not, Jesus is not pointing us back to the Ten Commandments and saying live by them. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus, uh, this Sermon on the Mount, I've mentioned this before and I will mention this again. According to Dr. R.T. Kendall, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, according to R.T. Kendall, is Jesus teaching on the Holy Spirit and how to live by the Holy Spirit, not by the law. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great expositor of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that the Sermon on the Mount is explaining the new commandment. What was the new commandment that Jesus gave? He said, I bring to you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that everything we read in the Sermon on the Mount is simply further explanation of to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That is the, the law of love, the law of Christ, is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another, to carry one another's burdens according to Galatians 6, 2. And as we will see later, to do unto others as you would have them do to you. The, those that live by the law of love, by the power of the Spirit, need no law. The law has been fulfilled. I say all of that because we are at the moment in the process of looking at what it means to live a righteousness that in verse 20 exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's where we are right now. And last time I taught, the last session, we looked at the you shall, you've heard it say, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And we look at anger, and we saw that the Pharisees, well, they were saying, well, we're not committing murder. We're not breaking the commandment, thou shalt not murder. Uh, but Jesus says, it's not just what you do on the outside or what you don't do. 
But Jesus was concerned about what was going on in people's hearts. This is a righteousness that exceeds the law and the Pharisees. It's what's going on in your heart. This is heart faith, spirit and heart faith that Jesus is, is looking at. And um, this is important for us to, to understand because we are now coming to the next section in, in, in this area where we're looking at a righteousness that exceeds those of the Pharisees and we are in verse 26. So that's where we are right now. We will, end up go, we will be going through this section and we'll be looking at a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. We've looked at thou shalt not kill. Now we're going to look at thou shalt not commit adultery. We're going to look at the issues of divorce. We're going to look at the issues of oaths. We're going to look at the issue of an eye for an eye. We're going to look at the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And these are all illustrations of what it means to be a spirit-filled believer who lives with a righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember the shock that the people must have had when Jesus said, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because they were the teachers of the law, the guardians of the law. They were meticulous in everything that they did. They had laws to protect them from breaking the laws. So a lot of the people were looking at this thinking, well, how can this be possible? Well, here we are in verse 26 of Matthew 5. Truly I say to you, oops, sorry, uh, yeah, verse 27, sorry. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. So having dealt with um, thou shalt not commit murder and Jesus dealing with the issues of the heart we see that Jesus is now also dealing with another of the commandments of the law and again giving a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and exceeds the law he's referring to the seventh commandment that speaks about not committing adultery but he is also speaking about the tenth commandment, these can be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 and verse 17. So the, the, the seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. The tenth commandment, that talks about not coveting. And one of the things that are in that not coveting is don't covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's servant. But also it says in the tenth commandment, don't covet your neighbor's wife. So it's interesting that in the Ten Commandments, we see this dealing with adultery really in, in two of the commandments. Do not commit adultery and do not covet your neighbor's wife. And so Jesus first deals with the outward manifestation of this law. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not commit adultery. 
and again we're going to see the same with thou shalt not commit murder, that the Pharisees were focusing on the external, but Jesus was focusing on what was going on in the internal heart of a person. Now, when the law came, when these commandments first came, when the law first came, the law was given for two or three reasons. That's why the law came. The law of Moses was only ever a temporary measure. Do you remember that? I've given you the illustration before. I'll give it to you again because I want it to soak in your heart. The law was like a teacher coming in to deal with a naughty class. And the class was rebellious and all over the place. And the law came in as one of those super teachers and came in and said, Right, I'm your new teacher. I'm not taking anything from you. No rebellion, no messing around. You're going to do as you're told. These are the laws of the classroom. If you break, break any of these laws, class, then you will be punished. And immediately somebody tries it on with the teacher. He says, Right, detention, five days running. After a few punishments, the class has come under external control. Somebody could walk into that classroom and say, what a beautifully behaved class. You've done such a wonderful job, teacher law, in dealing with this class. And they're all sitting there. But we know the reason that they are under control and are obedience is what? Fear of the law. It's an external obedience. That's very important. The law came to reveal sin and the law came to restrain sin externally. So if you're naughty in my class today, you will be punished. Okay, nervous laughter, is he joking? Yeah. So that's it. But we know that if that teacher, that law teacher left and the old teacher came back, they would go right back to their old rebellious ways. Why? Because it's an issue of the heart that we're dealing with, that Jesus is dealing with. So when Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, he's speaking about the external commands that dealt externally with the, with the children of Israel. Now, thank God the law came when it did, because the children of Israel were at their most rebellious when the law came. I mean, they refused to walk by faith. They refused to believe the promises of God. And God had said, believe me and you will enter into the promised land. For 340 years since the time of Abraham, no law was ever given. The people of God had lived by faith in the promises of God and relationship with God. But now, the rebellious people in the, in, in, in the wilderness, and you can see this example of them in Hebrews, talks about the rebellious heart that was there. God brings them under external control by the law. And thank God the law came in because the law was needed to preserve Israel until Christ came. The law was there to restrain sin reveal sin, and also point and prepare people for the coming of, of Christ. Now, this law, thou shalt not commit adultery, and do not covet your neighbor's wife, the seventh and the tenth command, came in the nick of time. I mean, when Moses was coming down from the mountain, what were the children of Israel actually doing? Well, uh, the Bible tells us, that they were in Exodus chapter 32 verse 6, Exodus chapter 32 verse 6, and 1 Corinthians 10, 7. 1 Corinthians 10, 7. It says that the children of Israel 
rose up to play. Do you remember that? Exodus 32, 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 7. What were they doing? While Moses was receiving the commandments, they couldn't even wait for him to get down. They were building themselves a golden calf and they were rising up to commit all manner of sexual immorality. That's where they were. They were taking their cue from the pagan nations of the world. I mean, even in Jesus' and Paul's day, the pagans and the Greeks, um, sexual immorality was not just rife, it was institutionalized in their religion. I mean, part of pagan religion, even in the times of the New Testament, was to go and deal with the temple prostitutes. Religious prostitutes, part of your religion, that you would have sexual uh, dealings with. And so sexual perversion, adultery, all these types of things were institutionalized in the pagan nations. And, and Israel was rising up to play. That's a euphemism for committing adulteries and all manners of sins. And so when these commandments came, it came in the nick of time to, in order to protect the nation. And if these commands hadn't come, Israel would have collapsed. It would have collapsed. You say, well, why would it collapse? Why are these commandments so important? Well, I've said that sexual promiscuity was sweeping the nations and was catching up with Israel. And these commandments show to us that at the heart of a stable society is faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage. This is what this is talking about. Do not commit adultery. In other words, is the negative way of saying, stay faithful to your wife, stay faithful to your husband. These commands guarded the integrity of the family unit. And a nation is only as strong as its families. Or let me take that one stage further. A nation is only as strong as its marriages. I mean, there's no condemnation here for anybody who's got a failed marriage or a failed relationship. And if you're caught in sexual immorality, then I've got a message of hope for you at the end of this sermon. But that doesn't mean we can't deal with, uh, with issues in case we tread on someone's toe that's still sore. And if you look at this nation, one of the worst things is the breakdown of marriage caused by often unfaithfulness. The breakdown of marriage, partners leaving one another, finding other partners. Many children don't even know who their father is. Uh, when a family breaks up, it doesn't just affect the children, it affects their inheritance. Fathers having children by different women, and uh, then the children of the women, what, what, what are they going to receive? Which child from which woman is going to receive the inheritance that their father should be building up for them? Who's going to look after the different women? And some men don't even bother doing that. They just walk away. And so a, a, a destruction, both financially, morally, spiritually takes place. Of course, some people uh, say, well, we don't commit adultery because we're not married. We're living together. Again, living together lacks that sense of commitment. It's not marriage. Single parents, absent fathers, the price of divorce in all its forms, no inheritance, emotionally damaged children, and not only that, but broken parents, broken relationships, people breaking up in marriage through adultery and other things, and then going off broken, taking their brokenness and breaking other people with it. 
It's the story of Great Britain today. I'm sure you know. Maybe you've been affected by such a thing. I know people in my own neighborhood. I know families that are just messed up because mum and dad couldn't keep together. Simple as that. Mum and dad couldn't keep together. And because of that, a total mess affecting so many people. So these commandments, external as they are, came to bring order, came to prevent the destruction of society. There would be no genealogies if, we, if they didn't have the law, do not commit adultery and don't covet your neighbor's wife. There'd be no, because nobody would know who their fathers are. And like I said, in modern society, Western society, there are, quite a, there are a growing number of people that don't know who their fathers are. And so these things are very important to stability and security. And we haven't even got to the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. We're just talking about the righteousness of the old Mosaic law right now. I mean, Paul recognized that these laws, the do not commit adultery and do not covet your neighbor's wife, affected him. I mean, it's interesting, keep in Matthew, but just turn to Romans. Because Jesus says, don't commit adultery in your heart. And you would think, well, I suppose people like Paul never struggled with such issues. On the contrary, Paul struggled with exactly the issue of coveting his neighbor's wife. Romans chapter 7 and verse 8. Or, or let's start from 7. Romans 7, 7. Paul speaking. What shall we say then? Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it was not for the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, and here it is, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once with the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What is Paul saying? Well, he's, he's echoing what Jesus was talking about. Paul was saying that the law, in the end, couldn't deal with the sin issue. It could restrain on the outside to a certain degree. But I said the law didn't come, did not just come to restrain outward sin, but to reveal sin, didn't I? Law came to reveal sin. So what happened was, when the law shined its light and said, this is the way that you must live, you must not cover your neighbor's wife, you must not c c commit adultery, the sin in Paul's heart reacted to being told what not to do, and it actually inflamed in him these problems and passions. And so he says, when I heard, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, something inside me said, that's exactly what I want to do. And, and, and the law that was there to, 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 to show me what's right and what's wrong, because of my sinful heart, my sinful heart reacted rebelliously against it, and I was in all manner of flames of passions that I needed to deal with. If you want to know where Paul is in Romans chapter 7, by the way, it's not a description of him when he became born again. Romans chapter 7 is a description of Paul when he was under the law. This Romans 7 is the best you can do under the law 
without being born again. That's the best you can do. In Romans chapter 8, we see Paul born again. So this is talking about the best the Pharisees could do. The best that they could do. And you know, when we think about do not commit adultery today, actually, we sort of think, well, anything that's unfaithfulness outside marriage. But the law taught it a little bit differently because really the Mosaic law meant this, that to commit adultery was anybody that committed sexual immorality outside marriage if they were an Israelite male or an Israelite female. So, for example, the law taught that if a man had sexual dealings with a single girl, um, neither of them was stoned for adultery, it was expected that if that woman was an Israelite, that the man would marry her. Okay, so that, that's not what we normally think as sexual infidelity. Also, there was provision for concubines in the law, and uh, to, to have sexual dealings with somebody that was a foreigner or a slave, all these things could be used as loopholes and were used as loopholes by people to commit sexual immorality. You know, situation ethics isn't a modern thing. Do you know that? People will always try and bend the rules and the regulations to suit them and say, ah, yeah, but I'm different, or this situation is, is different. So it was own, adultery was only seen as a stoning offense if it happened between, you know, if it was an Israelite male married to an Israelite wom- woman, if that marriage, if, if either of those partners committed adultery, then yes, the law was that they were to be stoned. But Jesus, as we've said, isn't just talking about some external law. He's come to fulfill the law. He's speaking about the beatitude man, the beatitude woman. He's speaking about someone that's filled with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. He's speaking about somebody that that is saying, I've come to obey the commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, whose prime motivation is to walk by the Spirit in an attitude of love, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so Jesus speaks and he says this. He says, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart. Jesus again is saying that the issue is not just external. And this is an important thing for us today because the world is getting more and more licentious. It's getting more, more and more a license for sin. Do, do whatever you want. And here, Jesus, the Pharisees, they said, well, as long as I don't commit an act with an Israelite married woman, there's many, many things I can get away with. I can have a good old fantasy. I can, I can do all manner of things. As long as I don't cross that line, I'm going to be all right. So it was possible for them to have adultery in their hearts and feel that they were walking according to the standards of the law as long as they just didn't commit the act. But Jesus was saying, look, you have to understand that the act doesn't happen overnight and that the seeds of action actually begin in the heart. Out of the heart, all manner of sin and evil proceed. So Jesus says, you need to look into your heart. 2 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 14, speaks about this sort of, uh, this, this, this sort of heart sin. 2 Peter 2, 14, speaks of eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. This idea of eyes full is showing that people are looking with the look of lust. And this is happening all the time. I mean, pornography has is, is never been like, like it has today. I mean, I remember as a, as a young teenage boy, right, not saved, and we used to, like, dare each other to go into the newsagents to get, like, something off the top shelf, Playboy or whatever, whether we're 13 or 14, 15. That's, I wasn't saved, you know. We used to dare each other. And so we used to walk in, and you sort of walk in there, and you look at the sweets and everything, and you'd see the top shelf, and you'd make sure that it was a man behind the counter, because it was too embarrassing if it was a woman. And then you just sort of like, you know, walk them. Yeah, playboy please, in a deep voice. Your voice would hardly but playboy please, and take it. And then you'd run out, you know, you wouldn't get caught. It was really hard to get a hold of a playboy, you know. Some of you are shocked. I wasn't saved. <laughs> but today, you press the wrong button on your computer, bang, 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 true? Twelve-year-olds, ten-year-olds, in the comfort of their own rooms. Bang, bang, bang. It's all there. <laughs> all manner of stuff. Now, what is that? That is, that is the eyes filled with adultery. Anything, any sexual action outside the fidelity of a married man and woman. Which includes fornication. All of these things. And it's never been like that before. So Jesus speaking, and he's going in the other direction. And he's saying it's about the heart. You have to guard the heart. James chapter 1, verse 13, is worth turning to because it shows us how this works and why Jesus is, is concerned with it. James chapter 1, verse 13. Here we go. James 1.13, speaking about temptation. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and, and enticed. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, it's the picture that sin is born. The actions of sin don't just happen, but actually the seeds of desire, the seeds of temptation that are, um, what's the word? The seeds of temptation that aren't dealt with, but are uh, fostered, entertained. These seeds will, will eventually impregnate your spirit and eventually give birth. The picture is like of a normal pregnancy. You know, uh, the seed comes in, in conception, and then for a long while, nine months, that baby is invisible, but it's growing. The baby's developing, ready for the moment of birth. And then when the, when the moment of birth comes, all of a sudden, the baby comes out. It's, it's formed, it's out there, it's been born. And so what James is saying, is really what Jesus is saying, is that adultery, sexual sin, the actions always start first in the heart. If you can deal with the heart, 
The actions will never come. And Jesus is even saying, it's not enough even to have sin in your heart, not, not action. That still is going to affect you and rob you of things that God wants you to have. It reminds me of, this, of a story to illustrate this about um, a village in, I think it was some area in Africa, with, uh, and at the bottom of this big hill mountain was a village. And the village was going down with a terrible disease, and they sent in some specialist doctors and nurses to try and find out why all these people in this village were ill, and some of them were dying, and, and they were giving them medicine, but they just couldn't seem to stem this illness in this village. One day, one of the doctors decided to take a break and went for a little walk up the mountain. They went up the mountain, took about half a day to get up there, and as they got up there, they saw that there was a pool of water in the mountain. It was the source of the water that flowed through the village. In that pool had fallen and drowned a goat, a mountain goat. And that goat had become bloated and was decomposing in that water source. Now, uh, he understood why there was so much sickness and disease in the village. They were drinking a polluted water source. So what did they do? Well, they took out the uh, bloated goat, dead decaying goat, out of the water source, and everything got better. You see, the heart of the trouble is trouble in the heart. That's what Jesus is, is saying. It's not just enough for the Pharisees to be external. We have to let the Holy Spirit do a, a work in our heart. Now, I want to say something. Jesus understands that sexual attraction is part of our makeup. We were created sexual beings. I mean, there are females here and there are males here. And that's how God created us. And so the sexual instinct in itself is not wrong. And so when we're talking about lusting in our hearts, we're not talking about the fact that you've failed and you're in sin because you find someone attractive. You will find people attractive naturally. So there'll be, there'll be people that you'll meet, that you'll look at, that you'll see, and that you'll instinctively find them attractive. All right? That's not sin. That's not sin in itself. That's called natural being a natural sexual being, all right? So you see someone, you find them attractive. That's not sin. It's what you do with how you find them attractive that will cause that to be lust or sin, you see? It's how you do it. It's how you deal with that person. It's how you relate to that person. So sexual attraction is not wrong in itself. It's how you entertain and what you do with that sexual attraction. And Jesus says, if you looks, looks at a woman to lust for her, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Now, what Jesus is saying here is this, is that if we follow the law of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Carry one another's burdens, okay? The law of love. Now, if we look at the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. You know, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for God. What is that type of person, or how is that type of person going to relate to someone that they find attractive that's not their 
wife or their spouse. I'm speaking about adultery, remember. I mean, if, if you're not married and you find someone who's a good, upstanding Christian man or woman who's also not married and you find them attractive, well, that might be part of the courting process. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about do not commit adultery. Well, you have to treat that person as God would treat them and not as an object. An object. This, this is the problem when in the heart it says lust, when he committed adultery, looks at a woman to lust for her. This is, this is adulterous spirit. This, isn't, this is somebody who's looking at a woman, do not covet your neighbor's wife, or this is somebody that is, that, that is married, or somebody that is single, and he's not looking, could this be the possible life partner? But the person is looking at the other person as a sex object. And again, the sexual objectification of human beings today through pornography is becoming almost, unfortunately, second nature to people. The people don't see the individual, the personality, the, God, the person made in the image of God who, who, who God has designed to one day be in marriage, to, to have that family, that strength to be part. But all they see is that physical attraction. All they can think of is, is being physical with them. They're not actually treating them as a person at all. That's what lusting after somebody in your heart is. You're not loving them at all. You're not thinking about them at all. You're not thinking about their well-being. You're thinking about them as an object that can satisfy some sort of desire that, that, that is within you. And so this is about dealing with our hearts. Now, Jesus comes with, with a really strong statement here. He says, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable that for you that one of your members uh, perish than for your whole body be cast into hell. Well, that's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? I mean, for Jesus to say that about fornication, adultery, and to say, look, you know, if, 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 if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Do you know in church history, some people have actually done these types of things. One of the church fathers, Origen, was so concerned about committing adultery or lust in the heart, didn't want to go to hell, he castrated himself. And then later on he thought, actually, that was a bad idea. <laughs> well, it, shame he didn't realize that before. And there have been stories of people... Uh, extreme people taking these in extreme ways who have mutilated their bodies or their eyes because they've taken this um, so seriously and they're so scared that they're going into hell. So what does Jesus mean by these powerful statements? Well, the first thing to say, Jesus certainly takes immorality seriously. He certainly takes it seriously. Remember, he is speaking to two audiences. He is speaking to those that are under law, because he himself is under the law at this time until he dies on the cross. But he is also speaking to the spirit-filled ones after Pentecost, the Christians. And so Jesus makes it plain 
that sexual sin isn't just something that we can just sort of say, oh, well, God's grace will cover. Ah, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It matters to the Lord for him to even say something like this. Such a radical statement shows that these things are important. Why are they important? I've already given you some of the reasons. The whole of society in a nation depends on faithfulness in marriage. The whole destruction of a society or nation will come from unfaithfulness in marriage. It's as simple as that. Other people's lives are at stake except for your own. You know what I'm saying? It's not just two people wanting to do something together that they shouldn't. Other people's lives are at stake. Well, when he talks about casting out you know, your, your eye and everything like that, what, what is he talking about? Well, it's metaphor, not self-maiming. There's no way that Jesus is talking about... Because if, you know, if, if your left eye or your right eye caused you to lust and you plucked it out, well, you've got a left one, haven't you? <laughs> if your right hand caused you to sin, off, well, you've got a left... I mean, you wouldn't have any parts of your bodies left, would you? You know, people struggling with these issues, they wouldn't have any arms, legs, no nose, legs, face, anything. So there's no way that he's talking about this. There's no way. So what he's talking about is something different. He is talking about ruthlessly dealing with it in your heart. That's what he's talking about. Ruthlessly dealing it with your heart. And when he talks about being cast into hell, the word is Gehenna. And that word Gehenna, which is one of the words used for hell that Jesus uses, uses the words like Hades, that word Gehenna refers to the place outside Jerusalem where they burnt all the rubbish. It was always on fire, all the way through the night, all the way through the day, because they were burning up all the unwanted rubbish. And what Jesus is saying to those that are under the law, and this must have shocked the Pharisees, he's saying, ah, so you think you can get into the kingdom of God, Pharisees, and scribes by simply not committing the act of adultery? Let me tell you something. It's what goes on in your heart. If you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. And that is enough to put you in the flames of hell. This is a high doctrine of sin. In other words, without the blood of Jesus, well, the smallest sin can send you into hell. But Jesus is not saying... That if you struggle at any point in your life with lust in your heart, and who has not at one point in their life ever struggled with something, that you are liable for eternal punishment. Salvation does not come by works, it comes by grace and faith. But without the cross, without the sacrifice of Calvary, if it was just God and no salvation, then I tell you what, Committing adultery, not just committing adultery, which would, would require mosaic stoning, but, uh, but Jesus is saying, in your heart, want is enough for you to burn in hell forever. Seriousness, isn't it? But in these last ten minutes, I want to go a little bit further into what Jesus is talking about, because I think we can go a little bit deeper, a little bit more understanding about what he means when he uses these illustrations of plucking out your eyes and, and cutting off your hands and dealing rigorously with the issues. After all, it was the issues of the heart. Jesus is referring to the doctrine taught by others such as Paul in the New Testament called the mortification of sin. It's the doctrine or teaching of the mortification of sin. Now, mortification simply means putting to death. 
Okay? But that's the uh, proper title, you know, so I'll give it to you. It's teaching service. The mortification of sin or putting to death sin. Putting to death the deeds of sin. Let me explain what we're talking about. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. I believe Jesus is speaking about this. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Romans eight twelve, explaining what Jesus is meaning here. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, this is mortification, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The deeds of the body, you will live. So in other words, if you live according to the flesh, now what, what, what are the deeds of the flesh? Well, if you look at Galatians 5, you see that fornication and adulteries and lust, all these are deeds of the flesh. And Paul is saying, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh... If you put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we see it's a work of the Spirit and it's a dealing with those lusts of the flesh and crucifying them. Uh, turn in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Romans 13, verse 14. Speaking about lewdness and lust and strife and en envy in verse 13, it then says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death or mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Mortify or put to death your members which are on, upon the earth. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. And then finally Romans chapter 6 verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be put out of action. That's the correct translation. That the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be put out of action, disabled, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then down to verse 12 of the same chapter. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts and do not present your members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under law but under grace. Now, what am I talking about? How many people have got my book, No More Law? Just wave at me if you have. Okay, quite a few of you. I've done a whole section on this, on what the body of sin is and what the flesh is. I've done a whole section there. So if you've got the book, you might want to go to that area in, in, in Galatians chapter 5. This is, this is what's happening. When you become a Christian, you become a new creation. Your old person passes away. What is your old man? What is your old person? Your old man, your old person is everything that you were when you were in Adam. We are all descendants of Adam. And without Christ, we would remain descendants of Adam. And everything that happened to Adam happened to his descendants. 
Adam fell, we fell. Adam was judged, we were judged. Everything that happened to Adam happened to us. He died, we die. We are children of Adam, and when he fell, we fell. It's all there in Romans chapter 5. But when you believe in Jesus, you become born again. And everything you were in Adam dies. You're crucified, buried, dead with Christ. And now you are born again and you are in Christ. And everything that's happened to him now happens to you. But we are saved. But salvation is past, present and future. Salvation is past. All your sins are washed away the moment that you believe. All your sins. Salvation is present. Even your, your sins today, you know, God has dealt with your sins, past, present and future. You are saved eternally. Uh, and you're past, your sins are passed away. You're born again. Your spirit is 100% saved. You are a new creation. What part of you is a new creation? Spirit. Is that partly saved or totally saved? Totally saved. You have been saved. You are being saved. What about your soul? Is your soul totally saved? Your mind? Your emotions? No. It's being saved. Renewed, isn't it? Colin's teaching at the counseling is going to be on the renewal. It's your being saved. But there's one part of you that has not been saved at all in any way, shape or form. What part of that is you? Body, well done. You, you, you know your stuff. Your body. Your body has not... When you got born again, did you get a new body? Fortunately not. When will you get your new body? The day of resurrection. That's right. Or if you're alive, when Jesus returns, your body will be transformed. Your body has not been saved at all. It's the weakest part of who you are. One day it will be saved. And thank God for healing... And all these things which are signs that God loves and is going to save our body. So the weak link is your body. And when Paul is speaking about putting out of action the body of sin, he's not saying that your body is sinful. Repeat after me. My body is not sinful. My body is weak. I want you to say it again. My body is not sinful. My body is weak. And it's this weakness of the unsaved body. And your body has passions and desires. It has desires for food, has desires for comfort, desires for security, it has desires for sex. Your body has desires, and the desires themselves are legitimate. Jesus had all the desires that we have, but they were totally pure and totally under control. The trouble with a weak body is don't you find that sometimes these passions can get out of control? I mean, just look at society. The, 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 the desire for sex in its right place is absolutely God-given. But don't you think it's got a little bit out of hand in Western society? It's gone crazy, hasn't it? What about the desire or your appetite for food? I tell you what, if you didn't have an appetite for food, you, you'd be in difficulty. But isn't the way that people, greed and gluttony true and all these other things security we could go through all the legitimate needs and so the body has desires but the problem with the fallen body is at times these desires get out of control that's where the flesh gets in that's what we call the flesh it's the weak body the body is where sin still tries to get in it tries to take your 
appetite for food and blow it out of proportion. It tries to take your, your desire for impact and make you some sort of dragon's den, you know, headhunter, cutthroat, trample on anyone to get millions of pounds and be a success. It tries to get that legitimate desire for impact out of control. And it's the same with sexual desire, which is a God's given gift. The enemy will try to take that passion and inflame it and dominate you. Because isn't it true that the works of the flesh, whether it be anger and envy and uh, um, manipulations, trying to get your own way, trying to get the things you want by doing witchcraft and, and all these attitudes of jealousies, dissensions, arguments, all these are, 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 are legitimate desires getting distorted and causing you to be dominated by the works of the flesh. And so many people are dominated by the work of the flesh of adultery in their heart where legitimate passions are used illegitimately, inflamed by the enemy through the door of a weak body. But thank God, we can mortify the flesh. Now, I hope no one's going to go away and say, Bruce said I have to chop my hand off because he said mortify the, the deeds of the body. We read that in Romans, didn't we? Put to death the deeds of the body. No one's going to go away and start chopping off hands, gouging out eyes and say, Bruce said put to deeds the death of the body, that sin, sin tried to work through my weak body, so I'm chopping off my hands and my head and everything so, I, so my body can't... Are you not going to do... No, I'm glad you're laughing because that means you take the point. So equally when Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Better to go, uh, to, to go uh, into heaven with what, no hand than into hell. For, can you see how it all works together? Now this is, my final point, this is, remember, this, you have to be born again to even begin to do this. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not for non-Christians. Non-Christians can't live this. You get, I've mentioned before, you get politicians quoting the Sermon on the Mount. They have no right under heaven to quote the Sermon on the Mount unless they are born again. They have no right. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have the power to do the first thing. They don't. This isn't moral teaching for everyone. This is examples. And these are examples. The anger and the murder that we looked at earlier, last time I spoke, the adultery, the divorce. These are all concrete examples. Jesus is saying, I've given you the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, that's lovely, Jesus. But how does that work in reality? All right, let's talk about murder and anger. Let me tell you how uh, blessed, thirst and blessed of the pure in heart works. Let's talk about adultery and the passions of the heart. And let me tell you how blessed are the, those that thirst for righteousness. Let me show you an example in daily life. Next is going to say divorce. Here's my next example of how a spirit-filled person will deal with the issues of divorce. We're going to have a look at that. And then he'll say, um, then I'm going to talk about oaths and letting your words speak truth. And not abusing and manipulate your words. I'll show you how a spirit-filled person would do that. Now about eye to eye. How to deal with people. Retribution. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful. I'll show you in real life how you deal with that. And then I'm going to sum it all up with love your neighbor. Don't hate your enemy. And show you how a spirit-filled. I'm demonstrating to you a righteousness that above the law. That can only be done with reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
And then, where we're going, I just want to say, then we're going into chapter 6, which is another key to it all. You see, you've got to do it all before you get the full benefit. Because at the end of this section, you'll say, oh, that's great, so by the Spirit I can live like this. Oh, I don't know if I can. How am I going to do this? How am I going to put to death all this stuff by the Spirit? How am I going to deal with my heart? How am I going to, you know, I understand this, but how am I going to do it? You said by the Spirit, but what does that mean in practice? Oh, glory to God. Romans chapter 6. By taking the hand of your Father and walking with Him moment by moment. And the whole of chapter 6 is about what you do in the presence of your Father. How you speak to people in the presence of your Father. How you trust God when difficult times comes in the presence of your Father. How you deal with anxiety. How you deal Walking in the presence of your Father. We'll learn from chapter 6 when we eventually get there. We'll learn that whatever you do, do it in the presence of your Father. I was in a very difficult situation a long while ago, and I had to go to a difficult meeting with a difficult person, and it could have turned out very difficult. And I was concerned that I would act rightly and do what's right. And I just thought, well, you know, what, did, what does the Sermon Mount tell me in chapter 6? Well, it says, do everything in the presence of your Father. So I'm going to go into that meeting, and everything I say... Everything I react to, everything I say, I'm not going to react to the person. I'm not going to speak to the person. I'm going to say everything that it might be pleasing in my father. I'm going to imagine my father is sitting there with me. And everything I say and how I respond, it's going to be like, is that all right, father? Is that pleasing to you, father? Is that pleasing to you? Am I speaking right? Am I? And do you know what? When I did it, it was wonderful. See, that, that's walking by the Spirit putting the deeds to the flesh. Because that could have turned out very ugly, trust me. Could have been, on both sides, it could have been very ugly. But what did I do? I was a peacemaker. I came as a peacemaker. I, I wanted to, I came hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And I put those things into a concrete example by doing it in the presence of my Father, who was well pleased in that particular situation. We've got so, so much more to go, haven't we? So much more to go. But drip by drip and sermon by sermon and teaching by teaching, this stuff is getting in you. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Oh, sorry, I need to... I, I did promise, didn't I? It's just one second. It won't take you. One minute. I did say for those of you that maybe were suffering of any of these things and, you were, and I said I have a message for any of you that are involved in such things. My message to you is simple. It's the message that Jesus gave to the woman that was caught in adultery. He didn't stone her. He didn't destroy her. He simply said to her, I don't condemn you. Sin no more. And he let her go. Whatever situation you may find yourself here watching on the internet, or here today, I want you to know that God loves you. And if you're caught in a sin in anything like this, then God's word to you is, no more. Walk free. Stop it now. Walk free. You don't have to rake over it. You don't have to come and tell me about it or Colin about it. Just stop it. Walk on. Walk free. Sin no more. He doesn't condemn you. Be set free in Jesus' name. Thanks, Christian. Thanks, Christian.